At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. I'm Dominic Chewin from Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Karen Feinerman, Bono and Eisen, and Carter Worth. Tonight on Fast Money, not every single stock is reaching all-time highs these days, but the chart master himself is looking at a few names that are about to come to life. And later on, work-from-home darling Zoom Video blasting off again after its earnings report. We will break down the numbers, find out if the momentum can keep going to the upside. Plus, we've got a supersized edition of Fast Money tonight. We are taking your questions all through the 6 p.m. Eastern Time hour, so tweet us those burning trading questions at CNBC Fast Money, and you might just get an answer live on our air coming up in the next hour. But we start with an awesome August for stocks. While the S&P 500 ended the day down, it did put together a 7% gain for the month, making it the best August since 1986. But it is, a, is it a September swoon ahead coming up? It is, after all, historically, the worst month of the year for stocks. So, Guy, should we wake you up when September ends? I'm trying to channel my inner green day here for you. Look at you. First of all, welcome, Dom Chu. It's always great to have you. I mean, you're doing yeoman's work. Oh, do you want to play the song? Go ahead. You can play a little bit. Of it. Well, yeah, I'll listen. Just to mellow us out a little bit, right? Just to mellow out a little bit. That's a big Dan Nathan uh, group, by the way. And it's fitting you pick Green Day because every single day the market is green. And it is pretty remarkable. And, you know, if you watch the show, you know I've been more than a bit of a skeptic for a while. You know, I continue to be a skeptic. You know, September is historically a wacky month. But I think you throw out all the historical norms based on what's going on now. What I will mention is this, and I'm sure the great Carter Braxton Worth has some thoughts on this. You have a pretty significant move in the VIX over the last few days, despite the fact that the market uh, wants to do that grind higher. I think the VIX has been trying to tell you something. Bond volatility is back for the first time in a meaningful way since March. Last time that happened, that led to equity volatility. I think we're in sort of on the precipice of something like that happening. Fantastic August, fantastic five and a half, six months. Uh, but, you know, if you look underneath the surface, I think the market's trying to tell you something, Dom. Uh, all right. So what is the market trying to tell us? Carter Braxton Worth CBW only because Guy brought it up just now. What exactly does it look like from your standpoint? Are we due for that September swoon? Sure. Well, in many ways, I think the answer is there is no market, right? The S&P long ago became just a handful of stocks. So there's a lot of attention. There has been rightly so in the top five being 25 percent. But for the first time, just in the last eight to 10 sessions, the top 15 stocks as a weight now exceed their weighting in the dot-com peak, meaning the top five long ago exceeded the concentration level of 1999. But now the top 15 are higher than they were as a percentage of the S&P uh, than in 1999, just crossed that threshold. So every day a new record is broke. But let's consider the following. I have a table here that might be worth looking at. 
Just looking at the circumstance where you have a big month, August up more than 5%, and the S&P is up year-to-date more than 5%. Now, in the 93-year history of the S&P, that's only happened seven times. And if you took a look at the median or mean performance of those seven times, rest of your performance is negative, uh, down typically 2 to 3%. Now, while that's not a lot, that's the totality of the performance. There are drawdowns along the way. So one, uh, one plays at one's risk. So here's the question I have. Karen Feinerman, I'll go to you with this one. We know that the S&P 500 right now is up pretty decently high. It's a positive, solid year-to-date performance, yet we look at one of the S&P 500 equal-weight ETFs that tracks a more equally-weighted S&P 500, and it's actually down 4% so far this year. It speaks to Carter and Guy's point about what's leading the markets here. Is it worrisome for a money manager to see just such narrow leadership going right now? It is somewhat worrisome, but I think the ones that have led us, you know, the FANG names plus a couple others, it's understandable why in this extraordinary time that we find ourselves that that's where the money goes because of the size, because of the balance sheets, because of the, um, the businesses that are actually in some ways benefited by the pandemic. So it's really unusual. But I think that Guy's really onto something here with the VIX um, edging up every last couple of days. So when I think about managing money and I think about, wow, what do I do with this levitating market? I have to be invested, and I don't see another alternative. So um, in the stocks that I have, the, you know, some of the big ones, the Apples and, and, and Microsoft and Facebook and Googles of the world, but I also have a few for uh, you know, a reopen trade. But the VIX is somewhat worrisome. So while I don't want to sell my winners, I do want to protect them, and protection is actually getting a little bit more expensive now with the VIX trading up. But... As to, I, I can't just sell things because September's historically bad. And I'd be curious how September's have gone when the Fed is just flooding money and stimulus is around the corner. We probably don't have any comparisons for that dynamic, which we find ourselves in. So um, I'm nervous about every month, but not this one so much in particular. I mean, you could argue, than any other. you could argue, Karen, that the last 10 years or so have been filled with central banks flooding markets, whether it's September or any kind of a month. Uh, out there. Uh, and, and perhaps, Bono, I'll turn to you True. on this one here, because Karen and Guy and Carter bring up these points. And I want to turn to you because we have talked about the cost of insuring things. Karen just brought it up right now. It has been ticking higher, but it's still relatively cheap compared to what we saw over the past one, two, three, four, five months. So is now the time that maybe you don't sell the winners, but you insure them and protect the downside? Is it cheap? Uh, I think it's cheap versus the time period that that you mentioned, um, but it's still expensive in the grand scheme of things. If you look back historically, I mean, we've had regimes where, uh, you know, volatility, the VIX is at 10, 12, 13 um, levels. So, you know, 26 still seems expensive. I would be putting in place stop losses and buying protection against my holdings here. Absolutely. All right. So buying protection against those holdings, Guy, are there parts of the market right now that you think are especially vulnerable well, I mean, a big cap tech is a little. I mean, we're going to talk about Zoom in a minute. It's fascinating, uh, but so I'll leave that to when the conversation starts. But I do think, you know, some of these high flying names are absolutely vulnerable. But let me mention this going back to the VIX quickly. The last time the S and P 500 made an all time high was at 33.90 level, I guess in January, if memory serves. The VIX had a 13 handle. Now we're making all time highs 
with the Federal Reserve in in ways they've never even imagined, and the VIX is twice that. So you have to ask yourself, you know, if you had, if you had said to the, the, the Fed officials, you know, you're going to pour all this money into the economy, where's the VIX going to be? I think their hopes would be would be matching the December-January levels, and here we are twice that. So they can throw all the money they want at things, but I do think under the surface certain things are absolutely attempting to tell you something, and the VIX is the one that stands out to me. We'll talk about the Russell as well, which obviously has been underperforming the broader market, too. All right. So so we know that the cost of insuring against losses for the S&P has been ticking higher and it has been for a while now. It doesn't seem to be at least flying in the face of what's happening now with certain of those big cap tech stocks. I want to now turn now to what's happening with Apple. It was one of August's big winners here. Shares of the tech giant surging 21 percent this month. And today, with its four to one stock split taking effect, the stock closing up more than again. 3% just on the day. It closed at an all-time high, adjusting for that split. Let's now bring in Laura Martin. She's Needham's senior internet and media analyst. She is bullish on Apple. Laura, what do you, I mean, what do you make of this, this idea that you can have a stock split? It's been telegraphed for a while now. It just happened today. Is it just this notion that people want to buy Apple no matter what the price is? I mean, I think yes and no. I think what's going on with these fangs being revalued upwards, including Apple, is that ecosystems are being revalued upwards because they have an anchor tenant uh, service, and then they can attach other services to them and drive, in this case, 67% margins on its services and app business from Apple. So I think that, and I think the government regulation and, and crackdown is actually positive for the fangs because they have the resources to meet these extra regulatory hurdles that startups do not have. So I think it's raising barrier to entries to would-be displacers. So speaking of those barriers to entry, how, how important is it that maybe some companies are pushing back against Apple and its peers out there, of which there are just a few, if maybe just one or two? This, this, I, I'm looking at this kind of ongoing dispute with Epic Games, the creators of Fortnite, and the App Store just specifically is Apple's margin on that side of things going to come down eventually because there is going to be pushback? So I would argue the answer is no. Epic is the third. Remember, Netflix was first, then Spotify, then Fortnite. This is most recent. Five years ago, Fortnite did not exist. Epic released a fabulous game, and the reason that a billion people play Epic today is because virtually overnight, iOS put that game Um, into the hands of a billion people overnight. And now they want a sort of a volume discount. They want to pay less because they're so big. And I would, from a public policy point of view, that would be a horrible decision for Apple because if anything, your bigger companies should pay the most. They should, everybody's paying 30% to the Apple uh, platform right now. It'd be horrible to cut the price for the big guys because that means you're charging more for a startup, which is what Epic Games was four years ago. So, no, I think Apple will win this, converse, this this trial, and I think it will be found these are commercial terms, and if Fortnite Epic Games wants to leave, they can walk away from all iOS players. How effectively, Laura, how effectively has Apple changed its narrative? It wasn't so long ago that we were bemoaning the leverage they had to the iPhone, the smartphone market, the declining margins perhaps there. Now it's all about the fast-growing services side of things. Have they really now sold investors on the story that they are a services company and will be more so in the future? I think yes, and more complicatedly, meaning bigger barriers to entry, 
They've also sold consumers or I guess investors on the idea that watches add value, tablets add value, the Mac, these ancillary hardware on ramps create lower churn out of the Apple iPhone, which, which then drives up lifetime value per customer because you're selling them more hardware in addition to the services story that you just mentioned, which has twice the profit margins. So the more you, the longer you keep people in the hardware ecosystem, the more money they're paying Apple at a 67% margins in the services side of the business. Laura, I want to expand this discussion. Bonwin is on the line over here as well. I know that you've got something here for Laura Bonwin. Laura, thanks so much, first of all, for making yourself available and sharing your insights with all of us. I mean, given all the bullish sentiment around Apple, would you mind sharing some insights as to what are the things on the forefront that might raise concern? Uh, what, what possible headwinds outside of um, what, what they have going on in Washington and the antitrust? What would concern you um, and cause you to perhaps change uh, your view on the stock price in the, in the short term? China. China that Apple becomes a football in this political battle, that Trump gets reelected and continues to hammer away at the what he perceives as the unfairness of the fact that Chinese markets are closed and therefore like he's kicking out TikTok and, and WeChat from America. If Apple becomes the political quid pro quo and China kicks them out of China, it's about 15% of their annual hardware sales. And more importantly, it's got a huge installed base that if they can't buy services from Apple, that would be a you know 12 month downdraft as we reset Apple's uh, EPS uh, 10 year ECS estimates. All right, Laura. Uh, before we let you go, I just want to kind of bring into the discussion what's happening with TikTok. We know that a uh, another mega cap tech name in Microsoft is very much in the discussion there. Maybe even Walmart. What do you think the future is for TikTok, and what do you think it means for tech as an industry going forward? Well, I think it means nothing for tech going forward. So forget that one. Um, for TikTok specifically, I think that um, track, I think we have a track record of what's gonna happen next. I think Facebook, Snap had a great idea. Facebook tried to buy them. Evan wouldn't sell Snap, so Facebook replicated it, and today it's called Instagram, and it's five times bigger than Snap from a subscriber, from a user point of view. I think that's exactly what Facebook will do here, although they didn't try to buy TikTok. They're going to replicate TikTok in something they've introduced called Reels. So far, they're not doing a very good job, but I fully expect those engineers to get it right over the next six months. Meanwhile, TikTok will get sold to a large company, meaning it will be hard to keep their engineers. And my guess is that, that the systems and the iteration speed will dramatically decline when it gets to a bigger company. So I expect TikTok to be less effective a year from, go, a year from now after it's bought than when it was a standalone company. All right. Laura Martin, Needham Senior Internet and Media Analyst, thank you very much for all those thoughts. We always appreciate getting your insights there. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Karen Feinerman. I, I, Apple's up today again. It seems like I'm a broken record, but I'm not. It really is up again today. What do you make of the stock move? I mean, I think it's kind of ridiculous. I'm long. I haven't sold it, so uh, I guess that says something. But, I mean, I don't know how many days it should be up on the same split news. It's been up, well, they announced the split when they announced those blowout earnings, and that deserved to move the stock a lot. But the split has sort of been the driver almost every day, which is kind of ridiculous. I, 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 it actually makes me nervous. I don't like that it's up on that because I feel like when people realize, oh, the split doesn't really mean anything, that, you know, maybe the air will come out of it. But I have no explanation for it. 
Well, uh, I mean, Carter, Worth, what do the stock charts tell you? Well, Is there anything that we, we do with Apple at these record high levels and extensions to the well, quote-unquote overbought side? Sure, just, but, but think about it. I mean, Karen, you used the word ridiculous twice uh, out of out of words, so to speak, which is, I think, what is, but I own it. And I think that's the, the conundrum for so many people. Uh, typically, it's right to hold your winners. And yet at some point, uh, one wonders, well, is this ridiculous? So what we do know is you can measure trend in one form or another moving, using moving averages. If you were just to look at where Apple is in relation to its average trailing price over 150 days, it is now essentially 50% above its 150-day moving average. That has only happened one other time uh, in the past 15 years, and it was in uh, early 06. And pretty soon thereafter, Apple took a pretty good uh, hit, meaning to some extent it's a game of musical chairs. People stay because, hey, they have these things like, what else should I do? Or Tina, there is no alternative. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But if in the same time we can all use the word ridiculous or remarkable or stupefying, all of which are valid, it does make you wonder whether hedging, uh, writing some option strategies is the thing to do at a minimum, or trimming. All right. Well, while Apple has been posting one record high after another after another, at least valuations-wise, other names have been left behind. But Chartmaster Carter Worth, yes, we're going to go back to you, has some picks ready to come to life. Carter, what besides Apple can you still have some upside in? Sure. So uh, before we look at the charts, the thought here was we know that the S&P is making all-time highs, and yet uh, basically only 13% of the S&P stocks are making all-time highs. In fact, 50% of the index has made no progress in two years. And so is that an opportunity? Some would say the ones that aren't working aren't working for a reason. Uh, but I've singled out three, so let's look at the first slide. Uh, and this is basically showing you the stocks we're going to look at. It's Starbucks, Caterpillar, and DuPont. And it's showing you how far each is down from its all-time high. Starbucks down 15, uh, Caterpillar down 18, and DuPont down 49. So uh, real laggards compared to the S&P. So let's look at their charts. And it's all a common circumstance. First, Starbucks. And I I've annotated each one with a, a downward sloping line. And what you see here is that Starbucks is threatening to break above that line. And I think, in fact, that's what's going to happen. So here's a, a very large cap name that has catch-up potential. Now look at the next one. Uh, this is Caterpillar. Its peak wasn't a year ago, as in the case of Starbucks. Its peak was more than two years ago. But it's the same circumstance, that downward sloping trend line, and the stock is moving up to it and uh, presenting the opportunity, that's the thought, that it will break through. We think it does. And finally, DuPont. This is the one that's down the most. It's, it, too, peaked in January of 2018, long ago, like Caterpillar. But again, a stock that's come up dramatically off its low uh, from March, more so than the market, and is showing the potential that it's going to finally break trend to the upside. So three very large cap names that are down considerably uh, versus the market, which is making all-time highs, laggards for catch-up. All right, Guy, let's talk about Starbucks, Caterpillar, and DuPont. Do any of those names yeah, well, strike a tuning fork with you? The first two, I'll go backwards. Caterpillar, I thought for a while now, was going to head up to those recent highs of 150. You know, it's been having trouble at 142, but it seems to have some tailwinds for the first time in a while. So I'm with Carter on that. The one that really is interesting to me is Starbucks, and Carter is, uh, or either Barron's is echoing Carter, or Carter is sort of 
talking about some of the things that were said in Barron's over the weekend, but he's right. It is absolutely on the verge of a breakout. You've been putting this base in the low 80s for quite some time, and I think you know, Carter would probably agree a close above 88 probably sets you up to push towards that $100 level. So those two are interesting to me. DuPont has issues you know, of an, in and of itself. The other two, though, I find pretty compelling at these levels. I mean, Karen, are there, are, are there names there that you think are poised for the upside in, in that list or elsewhere? Uh, well, Starbucks, actually. I own Starbucks. Um, I think, you know, it's expensive if you're just looking at this year, but I think next year um, it's a multiple sort of in the mid to high 20s, and I think the year after that, um, uh, I think they'll be not only back to where they were in 22, I think they'll actually be above where they were. So I like Starbucks. I'm long. It doesn't matter actually where you bought it, uh, uh, but I've been long for a while. I'm staying long. All right, Bonawin, any, any, anybody on that list that, that you like in terms of valuations at these levels? Uh, well, CAD, actually, I've owned. Um, I mean, we've talked about market leadership. They definitely qualify there. Um, I actually have been putting some stops or owning puts, and I've gotten taken out of some of those names. I would play it slightly different. I would wait for it to hold the new trend. Now, I'm probably going to miss out on a few percent there, but that's the way that I'd be looking to play it. Like, it, it's got to hold a floor for me, and I would rather ride that trend uh, ride that trend rather than try to pick the beginning of said trend. All right, there we go. Some thoughts there on all those stocks. Thank you very much, guys. Coming up on the show, shares of Zoom on the move. After its latest earnings report, we'll dive into the numbers and break down all of the after-hours action. And later on, drama at the drive through The latest twist in the saga between McDonald's and its ex-CEO, what it means for the stock. Fast Money is back after this break. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to Fast Money. Work at home, darling. Zoom video reporting earnings in this last hour. Darren Deirdre Bosa is here with the details. And, D, it seems like it was a pretty bullish report across the board. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Dom, darling, indeed. It certainly keeps that title blowing expectations out of the water on every metric. Its biggest customers doubled year over year. Customers overall grew more than 450 percent. Now, just a few months ago, it's hard to believe we were sitting here talking security and privacy concerns and how much larger rivals like Microsoft, Facebook and Google were nipping on Zoom's heels with copycat products or features. It turns out, guys, that Zoom is pretty untouchable. A JP Morgan report at the end of July says that Zoom has now captured about half of the video conferencing market, and that comes just a year after its IPO. But guys, as its valuation continues to climb, of course, many are wondering what's next. How long can it sustain this momentum? Once growth comes back down to earth, comps, they're going to be tough. And its competitors haven't slowed down, even if they're just chipping away. Meanwhile, though, Zoom is looking to expand its offerings. So I'll remind you of those. Its new initiatives include its Zoom phone cloud telephone service, a hardware as a service where it partners with hardware makers to streamline its platforms and its own $600 hardware device. And guys, don't miss Zoom's CFO on Squawk Box tomorrow morning. She will be breaking down 
uh, all of this past quarter's pretty unbelievable action. Back over to you, Dom. All right. Thank you very much, George Bosa, with the latest on Zoom video. Let's talk a little bit about this team. And Guy, I'll turn to you on this first year. The stock is up from its 52-week low back, I want to say it was in October of last year, to now, to the closing bell. It's up over 400%. Now, it's up about oh, 9% on 16.5 million shares of volume, regular session. And it's up another 18% right now, after hours, on nearly 4 million shares of volume. This is a darling for sure, but can it keep going like this? It's, it, it can't, right? Well, the, the metrics are pretty unbelievable, and this is a name we've talked about, obviously, for quite some time. Now, we actually did start talking about it in the, in the fall. With that said, with this move that you just outlined now, Zoom now has a market cap, I believe, of $100 billion, which makes it larger than Boeing, and it makes it larger than Starbucks. I understand they're not comps. I'm just pointing that out just, for the, just so you can sort of wrap your head around what's going on. For example, by the way, in terms of revenue, Boeing will do, I don't know, $72 billion worth of revenue. Uh, Starbucks probably do $30 billion-ish. You're talking about Zoom, which is going to probably do, and they just said it, two and a half to $3 billion of revenue. Understanding, again, there's growth here. There's obviously not an M&A play anymore, given that it's $100 billion. So nobody's going to uh, buy Zoom. And maybe Zoom uses their stock to buy uh, somebody else. But with that said, if you've enjoyed this ride, good for you. I don't see anything wrong with taking some money off the table. Bona, when I, I wonder when you look at your when you look at these charts and you look at what's happening with the valuations, does it give you pause? Is it time to take profits or, or is this one of those ones where the trend is your friend and you just keep on riding it higher and put on those type stop losses? Uh, great question. I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, so to answer your question succinctly, I really think it depends on what your entry point was. If you're up 400%, I mean, you can take a quarter of your position off and you're playing with house money. At the very least, I would definitely do that. As far as valuations are concerned, I think it trades at like a 224 PE, something just absurd, right? So again, I think valuation is also off the table. This is really a question of liquidity and flight to quality, and it does, it, and it does have that. Got to take somebody off the table. The flight to quality in Zoom communications. It seems to be an interesting dynamic there. Anyway, thanks very much, guys. We've got a lot more Fast Money coming up. Here's a little taste of what's to come. Big gains for small caps? We'll take a look at a couple of names that might be setting up for a real rally. And later, has Macy's been able to put the worst behind it? We'll take a look at what options traders are saying ahead of the retailer's big earnings report. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. As stocks trade near record highs, there's one key area of the market that's been sitting out this rally. 
The S&P 500 has gained around 9% this year, but the IWM, that's the ticker for the Russell 2000 ETF, which tracks small caps, is down close to 6% on the year. But our next guest says there's still some big opportunity brewing in that small cap arena. Let's bring in Nancy Pryle, Senior Portfolio Manager at Essex Investment Management. Nancy, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Let's talk about the small cap story. A lot of folks used to say it was a leading indicator of things. It doesn't seem to be these days. What's the, what's the story with small caps? Well, there are two things with small caps. One, of course, is earnings growth, which matters for all stocks. And until recently, small cap earnings growth has been lagging the big companies, particularly the big companies that we've all been talking about, like the FANG stocks. However, one thing I would point out is that coming out of 0809 and into the mid-2014 era, those large cap stocks were actually much cheaper than their smaller cap stocks, despite the fact that earnings growth was faster. Today, we have the opposite. The smaller cap stocks are significantly cheaper than their larger cap stocks. And coming out of the second quarter, we've seen greater earnings revisions on the smaller cap side. We think that that sets the stage for a big rebound in small cap stocks. We're particularly excited about small cap companies that are growth companies that are just selling at value valuations. All right. So, Nancy, I, I was wondering, we, we were just showing viewers out there and listeners, if you're listening on Sirius XM right now, the chart we just showed was basically the performance of the S&P 500 alongside the Russell 2000. It was tracking very closely up until the pandemic lows. And then there's been a gap. So, Nancy, I wonder then, from a standpoint of COVID-19, how much was the virus pandemic the story here? People wanted to focus a little bit more on those, quote unquote, safer large cap names, as opposed to the ones with smaller valuations that could have more risk. Right. And that was very much a part of it. And so what we saw in those lovely 18 or 19 days in March is that liquidity and market cap really were determinant of performance and investors were rightly taking shelter in companies that were perceived to have better balance sheets, more stability, perhaps safer prospects going forward. Now, small cap stocks have had an extraordinary move post that sell-off after the market bottomed on March 23rd. But math being the way it is, even with that strong move that has outpaced many of the larger cap sectors, they still haven't quite caught up for the year. Again, we believe that they will follow earnings growth. And so as those earnings come through, and as earnings prospects improve more broadly for more companies with a resurgence American economy, that will bode well for the small cap sector. All right. It is fast money. We, we talk about stock picks. We can't let you leave without giving us some of your own. So, Nancy, as you look sure. at your portfolio, which types and which small cap companies are the ones that will lead this rally, so to speak, in small caps? So we're looking for growth stocks, but we want growth stocks that are selling at prices that do not reflect your future growth prospects. We're looking for companies that are innovators. We're looking for companies that can gain market share. Some of the areas that we like where we're seeing very disruptive technologies are the area of ed tech, fintech, um, some of the e-commerce, as well as a lot of work that's being done, particularly in personalized medicine. I have a few picks that you can see up on the board here that play off of those names, um, and I'd be happy to talk about any one of them. All right. So what we've shown here is Pluralsight, Elf Beauty, and... Fulgent Genetics. Those are the stock picks for Nancy right there. Yep. Uh, Nancy, thank you very much for joining us uh, with, with everything that you've had on the small cap story. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Guy, you've pointed out 
the underperformance of those small cap stocks, I mean, how much does it worry you to see the Russell 2000 underperforming the S&P by as much as it is right now? Yeah, well, I think you have to understand. I mean, I'm, I, I wake up worried, so it absolutely worries me. And it's, you know, the, the IWM, which measures, obviously, the Russell's probably up 65% or 60% since that March low. And it's still nowhere near that 172 level that it topped out. So that's concerning for sure. And, you know, I'm all for the resurgent U.S. economy. I, I, you know, I just don't really see it happening for a myriad of reasons, you know, not least of which we still seem to find ourselves smack dab in the middle of this pandemic. So I understand why one would want to be bullish of small caps. I just don't see the environment for it. I will say that Elf is a pretty interesting company. They just signed a deal with Alicia Keys, I believe, in the beginning of the month, which got the stock back to this 19 and a half level, which it topped out at a close above 20 uh, for you technicians out there, of which Carter Worth is one. And I think this stock uh, is set to make another new high. All right. So, Carter, let's let's kind of round out the discussion here with you. Were the charts telling you anything about whether or not that small cap story plays catch up with the large caps? So I think the point of picking a good growth name, small cap, large cap, doesn't matter. But it's really about the weighting of the Russell 2000. We know, right, that the Russell 2000 weighting in financials is 21 percent versus the S&P at 10. So you're so dependent on all of those banks, all of which who are struggling with their CNI loans, all of which are getting no interest margin on their lending. That's one of the issues. The second, of course, is the weighting in tech. The Russell 2000 is weighting versus the S&P, it's 11%. The S&P is almost 29. So you need uh, things to go right, which as of now, you've got a weighting issue that almost make it impossible for the small cap index itself to catch up unless tech collapses in the S&P. All right, it's a big story for sure there. Thanks, guys. Well, coming up with the show, the Oracle of Omaha making a big bet on Japan. But what sign does that send about investing in the United States? We will get some answers coming up. And don't forget to stick with us for a bonus edition of Fast Money, 6 p.m. Eastern time tonight. Tweet us all your burning questions at CNBC Fast Money. We may just answer them live on air. There's more Fast Money coming up after the break. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Oracle of Omaha is making a big bet in Japan. Billionaire investor Warren Buffett announcing Berkshire Hathaway has bought a more than 5% stake in each of Japan's leading companies. The purchase is valued at over $6 billion. Bonowin, is this a sign that there are opportunities here in the U.S. or that they may be dwindling if Berkshire is going to Japan for these types of investments? Well, I think, uh, man, first and foremost, um, anytime Warren Buffett is making a move, you, you've got to just take it into consideration. I mean, there's, you just don't fight it. The guy's track record is undeniable. Now, I think this speaks to, I mean, at least the way I'm reading it, it does speak to, to fiscal policy, right? Fiscal and monetary policy. And we've had a flood of, a fl flood of liquidity here. Japan has had its issues, and they've made a very strong commitment to loose monetary policy, They've also been stimulating the econ economy fiscally and looking to kind of restructure their corporate uh, policies and politics. So what I think he's saying is that, listen, there's some similarities here. I see some like for like. And I think that they may be a bit more adept and there's a regime change at actually how they're going to handle that. And it makes sense to diversify out of the United States to an extent. You couple that with his investment in gold. Uh, yes, I definitely think it's uh, at least to me, it's sending a pretty strong signal. I don't think you rotate out of U.S. stocks, but I think this is more of a diversification play. 
So, so Karen, I, I go to you with this one. I, this idea here that there could be more or fewer opportunities elsewhere outside the U.S. Are you of the mind that there are better opportunities outside of the U.S. stock market right now? Well, if you look at the things that he bought, I mean, those are trading at prices that P.E. multiples, we don't have anything like that for the scale of the companies that he bought there. So I have some diversification overseas, uh, some in Japan, just ETFs in Japan. But I, uh, my focus is always in the U.S. I think he probably would have liked to do something, but the markets corrected so quickly in both equities and debt, and he's done debt deals in the past, that I think the, the debt correction was so fast and so furious that there wasn't time to get anything done. So I, I'm intrigued by, what he, by his uh, foray into the, the Japanese conglomerates, but I, I, they're really cheap. But they've been really cheap for a really long time as well. I All guess right. he can wait. He's patient. He is patient for sure. He and his top lieutenants, Ted Weschler and Todd Combs, his top stock pickers out there, We'll see if those picks in Japan pan out for them. All right, well, coming up, a controversy with a side of fries. Get your snacks ready, because we'll have the latest on the McDonald's ex-CEO drama saga, whatever you want to call it. That's coming up next. Plus, we've got a bonus hour for you tonight, and we are taking your questions. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. We'll tackle them live on air. Stick with us. We're back after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another twist emerging today in the ongoing battle between McDonald's and its former CEO, Steve Easterbrook. Kate Rogers joins us now with the latest developments there. Hi, Kate. Hi, Dom. That's right. McDonald's firing back at its former CEO, Steve Easterbrook, in a new filing in the company's lawsuit against the former executive today. McDonald's telling CNBC in a statement, quote, when McDonald's investigated, Steve Easterbrook lied and goes on to say that his argument that he should not be held responsible for even repeated bad acts is morally bankrupt and fails under the law. McDonald's is suing Easterbrook for fraud, destroying evidence and moral turpitude after they say he lied to investigators about having multiple sexual relationships with employees. The suit would claw back his severance package, estimated to be worth more than $60 million by executive compensation from Equilar. Easterbrook claims that the suit should be dismissed in part because he did not hide his own misconduct well enough and investigators, according to him, should have uncovered it on their own. A source familiar with the matter tells me the company's investigation right now is, of course, focusing on Easterbrook, but is also currently having an emphasis on the McDonald's HR department. That investigation includes leadership and former HR chief David Fairhurst, who reportedly, repeatedly made women at McDonald's uncomfortable at company events. Fairhurst departed shortly after Easterbrook and the company's new HR chief, Heidi Capozzi, is heading up a full review of the department and its policies. We have reached out to the attorney for Mr. Easterbrook. No response yet, but we'll bring you any updates as we get them, Dom. Back over to you. All right. Thank you very much, Kate Rogers, for the latest on McDonald's. Carter Worth, we go to you here. What do you make of this latest move from McDonald's? I mean, is this still the golden arches? Well, let's just talk about the subject at hand just for two seconds. I mean, look, the first thing, infidelity, that's been around a long time. Not to excuse it, but it is what it is. The second issue is if you're in this situation, doesn't a gentleman stand up and say, hey, you know, I, I, I'm giving you the money back? I mean, come on. So as to McDonald's, the chart looks pretty good. I'd like to be long. All right. He wants to be long. Guy Adami, you're shaking your head there. Is this a, a situation where McDonald's yeah, is something you want to right. buy? I mean, you know, these, 
No, I mean, Kate's reporting is fantastic, but in just terms of the stock, I mean, if you think about what's going on, and people are starting to write about this, McDonald's, almost more than any other company, is really poised to be successful in an economic downturn, and the stock is telling you all you need to know about what people think the economy is going to look like in the next few months. Series of higher highs and higher lows since that March low, and that $220 level, which was basically where we were this time last year, is absolutely in the crosshair. So I think McDonald's grinds higher from here, so I'm with CBW for sure. Bono, and what do you think? Is McDonald's a buy at these levels? I'm not fighting the chart master. Um, I'm with him here. You know, at the, at the end of the day, I mean, the scandal, we're talking about a $37 million clawback. I don't think that really translates into the fundamentals or technicals of the stock itself. All right, Karen Feinerman, right now we have nine strong buys, 17 buys, nine holds, no sells, no underperforms on McDonald's. Is this a consensus kind of buy it and hold it type pick? I think so. I mean, I, I agree with Guy that, um, I mean, they, I think the pandemic will allow them to actually speed up changes in their business that were starting already. They were starting on digital, having success there. So I don't own it. I feel bad that I've kind of missed it. But um, and as salacious as the other part of the story is, it would be maybe meaningful if he were still there uh, in the CEO role, but he's not. So it is interesting, though, just as a voyeur, I guess. But it's a great company. They've done a tremendous job. And I think, like Starbucks, they will come out of this pandemic stronger. All right. A corporate soap opera for sure at McDonald's right now. Thanks, guys. Let's switch gears if we, if we can here. We're in the middle of a retail renaissance. Nobody told Macy's, though. The department store is still down more than 60 percent this year. And options traders are not convinced that Wednesday's earnings report will do much to help this stock get back on track. Mike Coe has the action for options action. Good afternoon, Mike. Hey, Dom. So, yeah, we're taking a look at uh, Macy's here. We're traded about three times the average daily put volume. Right now, the options market is implying a move of about 16 percent. That compares to about 7.1 percent for the past eight reported quarters, although I would point out that, of course, the market capitalization of the company is about $2.1 billion and the enterprise value is about $9 billion. You compare that to about $6.8 billion and $12 billion, respectively, on the historical numbers, and you would see that actually the move that's implied is kind of in line relative to the enterprise value of the business. The biggest trade we saw was a sale of the weekly six-strike puts. That sale took place at around $0.20. Cents. The seller of those puts is obviously willing to get long the stock at that $6 strike price. That's considerably below the $7 or so where the stock currently closed. So it would actually have to move that 16% to the downside or more before the put seller saw any losses. So I wouldn't necessarily call this a hugely bullish bet, but it does express some confidence that the worst may be over. All right. We're showing viewers right now, listeners, $6.97 is where Macy's closed in regular trading today. Mike Coe, thank you very much. Always great to get your thoughts. Appreciate it. All right, Karen, what's your take on Macy's here? It is a retailer. It's embattled. Should we be buying? No, I don't think so, unfortunately. I mean, we've seen a couple of retailers, Kohl's and uh, Nordstrom's. Actually, Kohl's had decent numbers, but no guidance. And I- I'm very uh, pessimistic before the pandemic on the future of department stores. But one other thing, I always look to the debt markets first to give us a sense. And, uh, you know, I'm looking at there's paper that uh, matures in February of 23. So not very long from now. And it's trading in the low 80s, which, which means, you know, they're not that confident in Macy's as a credit. So I wouldn't own the equity. The stock's low, but it's actually not cheap. 
All right. It, it also trades it on a trailing basis of four, about four times earnings, probably for a reason. Carter Worth, your thoughts on Macy's? Well, just to put it in perspective, if you think about it, this stock in the financial crisis low in 08, it was $5.20. And here it is essentially at its financial crisis low. And that's uh, after a big ricochet all the way back up to 70 or thereabouts. Stocks do a good at business. Companies do good at business. And a lot of companies like this have gone out of business. I wouldn't want to own this. All right. Bonowin, what do you think? Macy's. I, I mean, I wouldn't want to own it. I mean, as we've all said, I mean, the, the dynamic, just the, the, the environment of online retailers and sales has, has changed. And I don't think Macy's has really uh, kept up to speed. With that said, the, the put sale makes a lot of sense. It's a short-term put. It's going to erode pretty rapidly, decay pretty rapidly. And there's, long, there's pretty um, long-term support around that $6 level. So you can take in some premium. If you get it down there, I think you probably, it probably bounces from that level. So I actually like the trade, don't like the stock. All right, get paid and maybe buy the stock at a lower price. Guys, thank you very much. For more Options Action, by the way, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Well, coming up next, your final trades. Keep it right here. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares of Rackspace dropping after the company's first earnings report since going public, though well off the after-hours lows. The cloud company posted a 9% rise in sales and a 100% jump in bookings. Shares were up 10% during the trading day, just getting back above its $21 IPO price. As a slew of brokerages initiated the stock with positive ratings, Karen, Rackspace, is it one worth owning? Well, um, it's in the cloud space, so anything, you know, tangentially related even is great. But I bought it after the close today, after they announced earnings, when the stock traded down. And the reason was because everybody came out today was the day they could first come out with uh, estimates and price targets. And everybody was obviously very bullish. They also happened to be an overlap of who underwrote the deal. But it made me just think, you know what? They must have known what these earnings are and think that they're fine. And so maybe the market's overreacting to the earnings because they got the stock got so pumped up on all the analyst reports. So for that reason, I bought it after the close today. All right. There is a nice trade for Karen right now. We'll see how it pans out over the next coming week here. It's time for the final trades. Let's go around the horn. Carter, to you first. S&P making all-time highs. Starbucks 15% below its all-time highs for buyers. All right, buyers of Starbucks. Karen Feinerman. I'm just sticking with my one rack space. That'll be my final trade. All right, rack space there. Bonowin, how about you? <laughs> Saw a little weakness in the builder space today. I'd be buying on weakness, buy some dips. XHB. XHB, the home builders ETF there. And Guy Gayadami, when September ends, Mr. Green Day and Georgetown. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, Your final and Georgetown, trade. I'm glad you mentioned that. Because, John Thompson, uh, please. John Thompson, yes. Yeah. Horrible, obviously, horrible news, 78. He was 30 years ahead of his time. Rest in peace, Coach Thompson. Thanks for being here, Dom. You are the man. And I tell you, that McDonald's story got me thinking it's going to break above that 221 level. So MCD for my final trade. All right. Thanks, you. guys, very much. And thanks, everyone, for watching Fast Money. Don't go anywhere. We've got a bonus hour of Total Request Fast Style coming up after this break. Keep it right here. We're answering your questions live on the air.
bonus hour of Fast Money starts right now. I'm Dom Chu, in for Melissa Lee tonight. Jim Cramer is off this week. So tonight, we're answering all of your questions about the hot stocks you're trading right now. That's right, we want to hear from you. So tweet us at CNBC Fast Money. With me tonight, the Tribunal, Karen Feinerman, Bonawin Eisen, and Carter Braxton Worth CBW coming up on the show. Zoom just reporting revenues quadrupled, quadrupled from last year. We'll have a meeting about what to do with that stock now, a video one, of course. Plus, one new to all this viewer asks, what does today's split mean for the future of Apple? Our traders will explain. And later on, if you sit through the whole bonus hour, you'll be rewarded with gambling and pot. That should be enough. We're not going to say anything else right now, but just keep an eye on those words. So first up, Zoom blowing earnings expectations out of the water, and it's no surprise it's been a stock on our viewers' minds. Let's get right out to our first question. Hi, Fast Money team. Thanks for taking my question. This is Jack from Massachusetts. Had asked about Zoom in July on Mad Money. I'm following up with a bit of a different question. Just wondering for a shareholder in Zoom right now who wants to see long-term growth from the stock, what's a good target timeline for holding and then selling the stock down the road? All right, holding period. That's the key question there. Bonowin, we'll toss this to you first. Well, we, we touched on it a bit on the last segment, and so really it, it's a question of where you got in. For a lot of people, it seems like they've gotten you know, th- 300 400% returns on their money. So taking the commiserate amount of money off the table, or sorry, the corresponding amount of money off the table just so that you're playing with house money makes a lot of sense. But I do question, right, if they already own 50% of the adjustable market, how much more can that grow being that we've had a pull forward of COVID. So with that said, it's not about timeline. To me, it's about technical levels. I would put the fundamentals aside. You set a level. If it breaks that level, I would be taking an increasing amount of money off of the table. Technical levels, Hold on to some, though. Technical levels begs the question for, say, Carter Braxton Worth. Are there levels that you are watching in a stock like Zoom? Well, if you think about it, once you're at all-time highs, of course, there are no reference points. Um, And in a stock like this where valuation is either uh, unknowable or undoable, it's really as much as the imagination will allow. But in terms of holding periods, in its purest sense, growth investing, um, and it's just about are you continuing to see top-line growth that beats and guides higher, gross margins, operating leverage, and as long as that's the case, you never sell. And uh, that, is, that is the time frame for sticking with something if it is truly being treated as a disruptor and a growth asset by a growth manager or investor. Karen Feinerman, there's no doubt that Zoom is a disruptor. It's obviously shown some of that strength. But oftentimes we breed competitors in these kinds of environments. Is Zoom communications safe? Has, is its moat deep enough, so to speak? I think the moat actually is pretty deep. I mean, just think about it. It's a verb, right? Uh, And so like a Netflix that we've talked about competitors for years, deep-pocketed competitors, and it really hasn't seemed to matter. And I think Zoom may be in that same situation. So, But I agree with with Bonwin that... uh, if I were a tr- more trading oriented, I'm not, but, and I did have these enormous gains, 
then I would take some off the table and then just let, let the rest ride. But normally when we think about you know, business plans over years, this has happened in a matter of months. So we're looking at a very different sort of timeline than we normally would when the valuations, you know, they've had, I don't know, how many years of growth in six months. So I would hang on to some, but uh, I would feel like I got to take a little bit off the table. I mean, the Zoom chart is pretty much what you would define as parabolic if you looked it up in any kind of a stock trader's book or anything else, if it's such a thing exists, guys. All right, let's move on to the next one here. We've got stock splits in both Apple and Tesla taking effect today. Our next viewers got a question on the moves for those split stocks. How you doing? My name is Terrence. I'm calling from Piscataway, New Jersey. I'm a new trader. Um, just started in March, so I have a couple questions about the Apple and Tesla splits. Um, my main issue is I want to know uh, what are your thoughts on it? Is this something that I should be buying more shares of, holding, or selling? All right, Karen Feinerman, we'll toss this one to you here. That This idea of splits, First of all, we know it doesn't change the fundamentals of any kind of valuation. It's cosmetic about price. But how exactly would you trade these given splits? Um, well, I own, I own Apple. It's split. I'm not trading them around that at all. It's not a factor. But good for him for starting in March. I mean, half of being right is timing or more. Um, that, that's actually an extraordinary time to get started. If it was later in March, that would really be fantastic. But I think to me, it's, it's more about the fundamentals. And so Apple, actually, there are fundamentals that, that I can get comfortable with. It's expensive, but I see where there's valuation. The valuation can make sense. Tesla, I have a lot more trouble with. So that one, if I did own some, I'd sell some. Apple, I'm sticking with it, although I shake my head every day. can't believe it's up on the same news of a stock split for weeks now. Bonawin, the, the, the stock split story, is there a reason why people would want to buy a stock after a split goes into effect and the stock in essence goes from being, say, a $100 stock being split four for one to four $25 stocks at the same time? Is there a reason fundamentally to want to buy these types of stocks? Uh, no. Is there a reason fundamentally? Absolutely not. Um, but I don't think this is a story of fundamentals. This is a story of stimulus and liquidity. And if you look at essentially what's been going on, right? You have people, as opposed to outlaying $1,500, $2,000, or $400, $500, now they're outlaying $150, $120, and $500, sorry, $300. Um, So to me, it's like two things, the retail investor and cosmetics, as you said. And fractional shares aside, I think it's not about fundamentals, but you've got to pay attention to what's going on. And if people, enough people believe that the stock split is a positive and the stock continues to rally, then the stock's going to, going to continue to rally. Hate to dance around the question. It's not fundamentally induced. However, clearly people believe the story, and that's the reason why you buy. But that's a bubble to me. You're buying it because you think someone else is going to pay more for it. Is Apple a bubble, Carter? I, I, I wonder because, you know, we talk about this notion that perhaps – these things are fundamentally driven or not fundamentally driven. We, we know that with free trading, zero commission trading and fractional shares, the price shouldn't matter. Yet people seem to be bullish on stock split stocks. Why? Well, in the simplest form, think about why companies split. We know over time, the past 100 years, the average listed stock going back literally 100 years is about 35 bucks. And then it gets to about 90, 100, and then people typically split because they want 
the retail investor participate. It's a reason that Warren Buffett never did. He didn't want uh, people manipulating his stock, buy ratings, and so forth. So, yes, there is a phenomenon where the lower price attracts uh, an investor group. Uh, but in terms of whether Apple's a bubble, ultimately, at some point, right, you're just too overdone to the downside, too. It turns out all equities were that way on the March low. So Apple can triple from here. It doesn't matter what one's long-term view is. But the arc it's traveling now is, well, let's use Karen Feynman's words, ridiculous. It's steep, uncorrected, and risky. All right. Big moves for sure. Not just Zoom, but Apple Tom, as well. Tom, can I add one more thing? Absolutely, Karen. So just one thing. You know, We know that, okay, the retail investor can get in. Companies that normally are doing well are the ones that announce stock splits. So there is that momentum. And conversely, a reverse stock split is a terrible thing. That's companies that aren't doing well. That announcement alone often is enough to send investors fleeing, as they should. It is for sure a signal. Sometimes only, only companies doing well tend to split their stocks in that kind of a situation. All right, guys, let's move on to our next question. We've got one coming up on another headlining stock from Ryan in Michigan. Given that the dine-in restaurants have had a lot of pressure during this COVID-19 era and with the CEO scandal reappearing, is McDonald's still the best breed in the fast food industry? And is it still a good option to have this sort of exposure if a vaccine is found? All right. So, Carter, we'll start with you first on this one. McDonald's. What's the story there? Well, it's, uh, I, I like it. We discussed it earlier right, uh, in the show, and I think it's going to break out to new highs. We know that um, its March low and where it is now is uh, foreshadowing people returning to the office or their normal workday, all-day breakfast, is a big part of their business. Uh, I like McDonald's. I like Starbucks. I think these are two names that are laggards that have potential to really uh, play catch-up with the S&P. Bonawin, there, there are a handful of McDonald's locations, just anecdotally speaking, near where I live. And they are almost always fairly well trafficked. People are going in there, they're ordering curbside pickup, they're doing something. But it seems like McDonald's is navigating COVID-19 better than a lot of other restaurants out there. What do you think? I think it's an industry leader. I mean, and, and just, you know, a few segments back, we talked about essential business and whether or not you just had the ability to operate. With the drive-through phenomenon, you have all of the different um, curbside services or delivery services, they can continue to kind of operate regardless of the situation, right? I mean, if you look at their debt load, I mean, it's grown a little bit over time. I'd, I'd really like to see that free cash flow to debt kind of balance out a little bit. But I mean, the, the business model is undeniable. Strong gross margins, they've continued to trend higher strong net margins, those have continued to trend higher. You've seen a recent pullback as of late, but McDonald's, I mean, their business model, the real estate that they own, and essentially they're bringing in entrepreneurs to run those businesses. I think it's a phenomenal business model, and I think it continues to grind higher as well. All right, some of the stocks that have done well in navigating COVID, Karen, have been McDonald's. Some would say Chipotle is up there, maybe Yum! Brands as well, Domino's Pizza, Papa John's. Is McDonald's the one for you when it comes to food, or are there other ones out there that are catching your eye more? Well, McDonald's is one of them for sure, but I actually, Domino's, I think, is, they were really ahead of this game. They started being a technology company before restaurants felt like they needed to be a technology company. And so while the, the stock isn't cheap, I do think they've done an extraordinary job, and I think the pandemic has allowed them to just accelerate. 
So that would be one as well. All right, McDonald's and Domino's talking about those particular stocks and fast food. Thank you guys very much. We are just getting started on Total Request Fast Money. Still to come on the show, United Airlines makes a bold move that has the question of fees up in the air for competitors. American responded, by the way, this afternoon. Plus, what to do with a lesser-known tech name nipping at the heels of the big dogs? And keep those questions coming in. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money, and we may just answer your question on air. Stick with us. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to a special bonus hour of Fast Money where we are taking your questions. But before we get to our next viewer question, you've got United Airlines taking the lead in waiving one of its most longstanding and lucrative fees. Our own Phil LeBeau is on the CNBC Newsline to explain to us what's going on. Phil, this is a big one. Well, it is, Dom. And what you have is United Airlines starting all of this by making the announcement yesterday that it would be waiving permanently the ticket change fee, which is a $200 fee that you would have to pay if you were going to change your ticket. Uh, American and Delta also had ticket change fees. And guess what they did today? They also decided, you know what? We're going to follow United's lead. We are not going to be charging uh, a ticket change fee in the future. And this is a big deal. U.S. airlines, not just American, Delta, and United, but all U.S. airlines collected $2.8 billion, that's billion with a B, in ticket change revenue last year. And here's how it breaks down for the three largest legacy airlines. Delta brought in the most at $830 million last year, followed by American, and then you have United at $625 million. Speaking of Delta, this afternoon on the closing bell, uh, the CEO of Delta, Ed Bastian, was asked point blank, look, did you make this move because your competitor United started with this? Here's what he had to say. We are a competitive industry. There's no question about it. But I would, I would label today's announcement at Delta as confirmation of the path we were on since we'd already previously announced it. But uh, we want to make certain that we're providing the greatest value and the best pricing opportunities to our customers, as I'm sure our competitors want to do the same. He wouldn't say it, but you can bet all of these guys watch each other. And when one airline makes a move like this, the others take note and often follow. By the way, all of this is in response to the fact that you have an industry that is just not rebounding the way many expected it to. Airline passenger levels still hovering down 67 to 73 percent compared to the same time a year ago. And by the way, over the last 10 days, we've had negative airline travel numbers week over week. So it continues to pull down just a little bit. We're not going down to the April lows, but it is certainly not growing. Southwest Airlines is the lone airline out there that does not charge a ticket change fee. And when you look at the success they've had saying, look, we don't charge a ticket change fee. We're not going to charge you for checking uh, your first two bags. I think people have responded to it over the years. Now you see United, American, and Delta all saying, look, we have to do whatever we can for customers. Let's waive that fee. Phil, before we let you go, just one point of clarification. It is not all ticket change fees, right? The basic economy, which is what people look at on Correct. the Internet, does still have a lot of restrictions with regard to what you can travel with. But it is changing. Now, American today, and we're not going to get into all of this, American today made a number of changes adding more flexibility and, if you will, perks for the basic economy ticket. That's going to be the next area where you'll likely see changes with a number of the carriers. American announcing that today. And you're going to see this in this industry. They know that they have to get people on board as much as possible. 
anything to get people traveling again. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Always great to get your thoughts, sir. You bet. Now let's get over to that viewer question on that airline sector. I would like to get some perspective around the near-term future and the long-term future of airline stocks. Which airlines are best positioned and best poised to come back if we were to get a vaccine sometime during the end of this year? And also, what would be the ramp-up time to, once we get a vaccine, to get things back to normalcy, to get travel back to normalcy? And how long does it take to reflect that into stock price? All right. That's a pretty involved question. Bonawin, I know you were listening. What do you think? Airlines, near or long term, what's the outlook? Yeah, very multifaceted question. Um, listen, I think uh, this is tremendous. I mean, it's, it's showing, giving value to the consumer. I think it's tremendous for them. But to essentially get rid of a, a large revenue generating I don't see any capital associated with actually charging the fee, right? So a high margin, large revenue product, I think that's tough. I don't think that necessarily bodes well, but it's all about restoring value and confidence to the consumer, whether it be wearing masks or clearing the middle aisle or being more accommodative. I think that is generally a trend, and I don't think for a second that they're not looking at each other and moving in lockstep. I mean, I think the the announcement came out in in the same day. As for the outlook on the particular shares, Um, I think you've got to look at the balance sheets. I think American is still probably the most debt laden. I think Delta and United had some of the best, some of the better, excuse my French, uh, gross margins going into this, going into the situation. But I'm not really a fan of these high beta uh, epicenter type of trades right now. I think we're just still in the early innings. I have no idea. I'm not a doctor. I don't know how long it would take to get back to a new normal. I don't think normal is what we know it to be in the past. And I think there's still a lot of challenges in terms of adopting a vaccine and how long it will take for for that to translate. So uh, I still think this is probably a six to 18 month type of thing. No need to rush in now. Karen Feinerman, is it melodramatic to say that there's a new world order when it comes to airlines? For the longest time, these airlines did everything they could to squeeze every penny of profits. They jammed planes, they cut back flights, put capacity there, perhaps even overbooked. It was all there to try to maximize the amount of revenue that they can get every flight. Here, you've got people with no, uh, no middle seats filled. You've got a lot sparser kind of booking on these types of planes. Is this what we can expect from the airline industry in the years to come? I don't know about the years to come, but I would think certainly for the year to come. I mean, you're right. They, they were able to squeeze every penny out, and we saw how profitable they were year after year for the last several years until the pandemic. But now, obviously, the tables have turned and the customers are far fewer and the seats available are far greater. So you're seeing a complete change of, you know, who's got the upper hand. The customer clearly does. But I I agree with everything what Bonwin said. I'm very concerned about the balance sheets here. And I'm concerned that, you know, we talk about on Fast Money, we talked about Zoom and what a game changer that was. And if you think about the business traveler. I think that has changed materially, maybe not forever, but certainly for certainly for the next year, even if there is a vaccine. And, you know, we have so many companies that have said you don't need to come to to work in our office for the next year, at least. So that's interesting to me. I think that is a, a very significant change. So I wouldn't be 
interested in the airlines. They've obviously they've had to. They've had, they were able, luckily, to be able to, to uh, sell debt, to be able to get them through, hopefully, to the other end. But now you have the stocks that are maybe halved or, or down by more than that, but the balance sheets are very bloated. So uh, I, I'm not, I have no exposure in the industry. I can't foresee it for, for a while. All right. Uh, a big take on the airlines here. Thanks, guys, very much. Coming up on the show, in technology, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And if you're this particular dog seems you've been pretty hungry. But one viewer wants to know if there's more meat on this particular bone. We'll all find out together with regard to Datadog. And speaking of together, what to do before the TikTok merger decision? Stick with us. We are back in two minutes. Welcome back to our special edition, bonus edition of Fast Money, in which we are answering your questions the next one is about a lesser talked about technology name. But before we get to it, our own Josh Lipton has some insight that might explain the sudden interest in what's happening with Datadog. Josh. So, Dom, you're right. It's not a name we talk a lot about here, but Datadog has rocketed higher, surging about 120% so far this year. In the past five months alone, doubling its market cap to $25 billion. Datadog offers a platform allowing customers to monitor the performance of their apps, networks, and computing infrastructure. For example, let's say you're an IT manager at a retailer. You can use Datadog's tools to make sure your company's apps are all working like they should. That's important because so many more people are now depending on online services. Datadog helps companies spot technical issues if and when they pop up. Customers include Samsung, Activision, Sonos, and DreamWorks, just to name a few. Jack Andrews at Needham says rivals here would include Cisco, New Relic, and increasingly Splunk. But he argues Datadog boasts first-mover advantage, strong technology, that is capitalizing on an important area of IT spend. And he's a fan, he tells me, of co-founder and CEO Olivier Pommel, giving him high marks for creating a company, he says, that's growing strongly while remaining capital efficient. On the other hand, other analysts I spoke with, like D.A. Davidson's Andy Nowinski, say the company is the gold standard in this market, but have concerns about valuation at these levels, and the company is not immune to economic turbulence either. Earlier this month, saying macro uncertainty is having an impact. Datadog did finish August with a drop here of 11%. Don, back to you. All right, thank you very much, Josh Lipton, for that update on Datadog. That brings us to our next viewer question. This is Steve calling from Kentucky. I wanted to ask about Datadog. I bought it back in November in the low 30s and uh, bought some more at 60. I was wondering whether I should take my profits now or hold on to it for a while. Thanks. All right, Bonawin, the stock closed the regular session at $83.55. Like Josh points out, it's a $25 billion company. Now, what do you do with Datadog? What do I do with Datadog if I'm him and I owned it at 15 and then bought some more at 30? I definitely take some chips off the table. And this isn't about picking tops or bottoms. This is about staying in the game, being a profitable trader, and exercising prudent risk management. I don't need to even look at the stock chart. If you've bought the stock at 15 and 30, you take some off the table at 83, and then you go on about your merry way. And giving a nod to Karen, she pointed this out in the last segment. If you're involved in cloud computing, even tangentially, 
the likelihood that you are going to have positive momentum going forward, I think, is quite high. So, yes, I can see this thing continuing to trend higher, but it's a it's a mixed bag there. You've got to do it in the right way that maximizes your um, profitability, profitability and minimizes your downside. But KPI optimization, I think that's a tremendous business to be in. They are an industry leader there. Um, and I can, I can see the utility of, of that type of technology, absolutely. All right, KPI, key process indicator for those viewers out there who aren't familiar with that. Carter Braxton Worth, I'm looking at CNBC.com right now. The data says that on a trailing basis, the PE of this company is, get this, 8,703. What does that tell you, if anything, about whether you would own it? Right. It just tells we can't rely on that. But what we do know is this, just as a matter of technique, when a stock gets re-rated, it usually follows through for a bit in the direction of the re-rating. And I'm not talking about an analyst community. I'm talking about price action. When Salesforce gaps up, when Zoom gaps up, there's often follow through. Well, this stock gapped down on its earnings on August 8th. A lot of talk about decelerating revenue or maybe ahead of itself in terms of valuation, if you can even use those words. But the point is a drop in gap on heavy volume, August 7th, 20 million shares traded versus average daily of four. That's usually something to start to move away from. And then, of course, Bonwin's making the good point. If you've got, if you've got gains like that, time to move on. All right. Thanks, guys, for the uh, thoughts on Datadog here. Let's stick with the tech theme with our next question from Henry and Alex in California. My question for you today is, who do you think has the upper hand in the TikTok deal? Oracle or Walmart and Microsoft, and why? And my follow-up question is, what impact do you think the acquisition will have on the winning company's stock price in the short and long term? Great questions. Carter Braxton Worth will go to you here because these are big names that are in the acquisition hunt right now. Right. I mean, so I can't speak to, you know, so who's got the upper hand in, in terms of, you know, TikTok and who's got this space better than that. And it's it's really um, the antithesis of looking at price action. What we know, right, is let, let's take uh, Walmart, for instance, a very uh, good stock that's now under pressure or, or other retailers. We know the XRT itself uh, has taken a bad hit to the downside after stretching. And so just stick with, if you can, something that is showing uh, reliable growth and is never getting quite so steep as some of the other names we've been talking about for the past hour. Karen Feinerman, I, I wonder if I might get your thoughts here. Walmart is not a small company, and it could be partnering with Microsoft, which is not a small company. You've got Oracle, not a small company. Are, are those, is there a better suitor in that mix, or, or is there somebody else out there that might provide a better fit for TikTok? I don't know. It seems like everybody in the world is looking at it, but I think that my guess, and it really is a guess, I'm surprised that we haven't had any, any leaks about this since the, it, it could be a deal as, announced as soon as tomorrow. Who knows? I, Microsoft and Walmart, to me, makes the most sense. And I think the company that has the most upside from that is Walmart, because I think that can be somewhat transformative for their business. In, and I think that we're in the process of seeing a re-rating in Walmart Obviously, the, the divergence between the Amazon or the, the, the difference between the Amazon multiple and the Walmart multiple, backing out AWS for taking out their cloud business from Amazon, 
the retail business of Amazon trades wildly higher than the retail business of Walmart. And I think this would be a very interesting acquisition to help them accelerate the e-commerce and to maybe get a higher multiple. Doesn't need to be anywhere remotely close to Amazon's multiple. But so to me, the stock that has the most sort of bang for the buck here is Walmart. And uh, who knows, who knows what anybody's guess, but if I had to pick one suitor, the Microsoft Walmart team, I think, will be the winner, but I'm not sure. Bonawin, before we leave, I want to get your thoughts here. What's the most interesting part of this TikTok story in terms of your investing thesis? I have very little to add um, in addition to what Mrs. Feinerman has, has pointed out. Um, I think the Microsoft um, Walmart team makes the most sense between those two suitors, at least, because of the cloud computing, the online uh, distribution, the distribution, physical distribution centers, and the t touch with the retail consumer, vis-a-vis -a, -vis a enterprise software company. So just natural synergies. I see them being able to integrate that business more seamlessly and unlock value for those reasons. All right, big discussion there on TikTok. It continues for sure here. Let's hit the Twitterverse now for a tweet. Blaze Bullock asks, what do you think about buying JPM, JP Morgan, right now? Karen, we'll go to you with this one. Okay, well, I love Jamie Dimon. I think Jamie Dimon is the, the most talented and important financial services CEO out there in the world, probably. So I am long J.P. Morgan, um, and when I think about uh, being long, it, it doesn't matter to me what my cost basis is. If I went home long, that means I'm essentially buying it at the close. So at about $100, it's about, I believe, 1.6-something percent of book. And the question is, how bad will the credit losses be before they can get back on track? They'll be really bad. There's no doubt. We haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it really at all. In March, we saw them take gigantic provisions. Again, the next quarter, they take, took gigantic provisions. They will again this quarter take very large provisions. But ultimately, I think they will earn their way out of this. And they're going to earn money this year, even with those gigantic provisions. So you can't look at the stock on what's it going to earn this year or next year. But all that put together, I am long. I, I think that you will find value in J.P. Morgan. It's going to take a while, but I'm, I'm patient. I'll wait. All right. More often than not, if you're investing in financials, you've got J.P. Morgan on the top of one of those shopping lists for sure. Thanks, guys, very much. Still to come on this viewer-driven bonus hour of Fast Money, you want to know which company is best positioned in the race to develop a COVID vaccine? We're going to find out when this special edition of Fast Money is back after this commercial break. Welcome back to a special bonus hour of Fast. We are taking your questions and answering them live on air as best we can. With the nation still in the grip of COVID-19, the promise of potential vaccines understandably seems to be an important one to you. First, though, let's get an update on where the race for a vaccine currently stands. Our own Meg Terrell joins us with the latest there. Good afternoon, Meg. Hey, Dom. Well, just some more news this afternoon. AstraZeneca has confirmed that it is beginning its large phase three efficacy trial of its vaccine developed with Oxford University here in the United States. Uh, now, this makes it the third large trial to begin here in the U.S. after Pfizer and Moderna. They say they plan to enroll up to 30,000 participants. Uh, and depending on how that enrollment goes and how the infection rates are, where they're running the study, they say they could have results by the end of this year. 
Uh, now, Pfizer and Moderna started their trials July 27th, and you can see here they're already more than half enrolled toward that goal of 30,000 participants. These are updates they gave over the weekend. Um, but of course, there are questions about how fast this vaccine process is going. And AstraZeneca and its announcement of the trial starting in the U.S. today, also putting out a statement and really a commitment uh, about that. It's uh, CEO Pascal Sorio saying, quote, in recent weeks, we've seen an increasing number of questions around the safety and availability of vaccines to fight this terrible COVID-19 pandemic. And I want to reiterate my commitment that we're putting science and the interest of society at the heart of our work. We are moving quickly but without cutting corners, and regulators have clear and stringent efficacy and safety standards for the approval of any new medicine, and that includes this potential COVID-19 vaccine. Dom, so speaking there to some of these concerns that we've been hearing that this is moving at record pace uh, and people wanting reassurance that they will be safe and effective in these trials. Back over to you. All right, a big story for sure. Thanks for keeping us up to speed there, Meg, on the latest on the COVID-19 vaccine race. That brings us to our next question from Doug in New Jersey. My question tonight is about the pharmaceutical lottery. Some companies say they have a vaccine that you have to keep frozen. Russia and China say they have a vaccine. You're not going to hit me with that. My question is to you. I have a call option with Pfizer, $40 strike price, October 16th. Am I going to make it or is my contract sleeping with the Pfizer's? Sleeping with the Pfizer's. Bono, and we'll go to you with this one here. <laughs> Pfizer closed the regular session at $37.79. He's talking about a 40 strike call. What do we think about Pfizer? Well, you know what? I think if you're in Pfizer, you've got to be liking it for more than just a play on the on the vaccine. You've got AstraZeneca now, you've got Pfizer-BioNTech, and you've got Moderna. Now, I will say there are certain things that I like about Pfizer. Valuation, for one, and the fact that they're kind of spinning off or, or getting rid of their, um, their um, excuse me, drawing a blank here, their um, g- generics business. So there's a lot of things to me that are tailwinds for the stock. With that said, I need to know what, you would, what you've paid for that strike price. What I will say is October, right? You're kind of in that sweet spot around root time Vega where your value starts to erode. So I would be looking to probably roll that position if you don't get a stock move in pretty short order. All right, Carter Worth, we go to you here. The majority of analysts here on CNBC.com's data sheet for Pfizer have a hold rating on the stock. It also is now down about 4% on a year-to-date basis. Is this a stock that you want to get involved with? I mean, I think it goes in the bucket of large cap laggard that has the potential to catch up. And so still some 18 percent off its uh, all time high. Again, S&P making all time highs. And so this is the kind of thing if you have a very extended name, an Apple, let's let's trim some of that and double back and find something like this, like a Starbucks, like a Pfizer, which has lag that has catch up potential. So I think this is one to look at in terms of the timing. Yeah, you're cutting it close, but October, you know, there's enough time if things go well. And my inclination would be to hold the option. Karen, is it is it Pfizer when it comes to big pharma or, or biopharma or is it somebody else out there? Do you like Pfizer as a name? I like Pfizer as a name. I, um, you know, I think it's it's been a laggard, as Carter said. Um, I think that for these really big names like a Pfizer, who is in the hunt, and an AstraZeneca, I think there's so much pressure on them. If they do have a vaccine, 
to charge very little for it. Unlike Moderna, who seems to be interested in you know, maximizing the profit potential, and that's fine, we need a vaccine. I think that um, the other big drug companies <clears throat> will face more pressure. So, I, you know, I would be either in the XBI or the IBB if you wanted to have exposure to the drug companies or the biotech companies. All right, using the ETF market for that exposure. Thanks, guys, for that and the thoughts on Pfizer and the COVID-19 base. Still to come on the show, could a plot twist be developing in the movie business? Or if that's not an investment you entertain, how about something with a little more money on the line? More of this special bonus hour of Fast coming up ahead. Welcome back to this bonus edition of Fast Money. We are taking your questions and answering them live on air. But first, a question for you. How likely are you to go to the movies anytime soon? We ask because people overseas are actually surprisingly likely to go to the movies. Our own Julia Borston is here to explain. The first wide release since COVID, Warner Brothers' Tenet grossed over $53 million across 20,000 screens in 41 international markets. That debut would have been considered small pre-COVID, but industry watchers are reassured that this is the biggest ever opening by a Christopher Nolan film in nine countries. Warner Brothers says its release schedule is a marathon, not a sprint, with the film scheduled to open here in the U.S. this weekend. Tenet performed particularly well on IMAX screens, delivering five million dollars at the box office. That's over 9% of the weekend box office total. And it's by far the biggest late August international box office weekend for IMAX, indicating consumer demand for IMAX's more premium theatrical experience. Now here in the North American market, Disney Fox's The New Mutants drew $7 million at the box office at the lower end of expectations, dragged down by negative reviews. And also only about 60% of theaters were open and they're operating with capacity constraints. Theater stocks suffering today on that disappointing U.S. box office. AMC Entertainment Holdings down nearly 7%, while Cinemark fell 4%, and IMAX shares declined 2%. Now, one sign of the changing box office, Orion Pictures' Bill & Ted Face the Music grossed over $1 million, despite the fact that consumers could also rent or buy that film at home. Don, back over to you. All right, thank you very much. Julia Borson with the latest there. Our next question comes from a viewer who also has his eyes on that Hi, my name is Kevin Schmidt from the great city of New Hampshire. I'm calling in today asking about AMC. I'm holding some in-the-money calls expiring in March, and I was thinking that with the end of the pandemic, the stock price may improve. Uh, wondering what you guys think about that. Karen Feinerman, let's go to you with this one here. Are you a fan of the silver screen, and if so, is it AMC? Uh, no, I'm actually not, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that... This was in secular decline before the pandemic hit, right? We've seen pressure on, on theaters, and we've also seen a collapse in some cases of the time that a movie is released in theaters and then the time that it's available for people at home. So that has gotten a lot narrower, and in some cases that's down to zero time difference. So this was in decline before any of this started, and so now, obviously, with the pandemic, you, you know, you, theaters have been closed for a while. They're opening up now, but they have spaced out seating. And if you think about that, that, blank, that empty seat right next to you, the margin on that empty seat is gigantic. So this is a lot of lost revenue. They've got a lot of uh, debt, AMC in particular. So while the stock is low, I'm not a giant fan of it. And I look at the debt always to give me a sense of 
how the debt markets think about a, a name, and I feel like they're always better at uh, understanding cash flow than the equity markets. And given all that, you know, and the debt, the balance sheet is just too debt-laden for me. All that together, I wouldn't own it, but if I did, I would do it through calls. All right. Uh, a move there on AMC for sure to watch. Coming up on the show, guys, with lots of gambling shut down, many of you are new to the market game, but that's no reason to give up on your old hobbies. Just play it a new way. Or, if that's too stressful, others of you are finding a whole new way to relax. We'll roll all the puns together coming up next after the break. Welcome back to a special edition of Fast Money. We are easing into the home stretch of answering questions from you, our viewers, to help us ease nothing like a little friendly wagering and some pot, perhaps. First, a gamble on sports betting. Hi, guys. Nika from Chicago here. Hope all's well. Um, I have a question about DraftKings. Been watching CNBC and hearing that it will continue to trend north. Um, I think sports will continue to come back. Wondering your opinions. Thank you. All right, DraftKings, Bonwin, we'll go to you. Would you I mean, I, I don't know, you even know what to do with this because DraftKings, sports aren't even really going on right now, yet this stock has been a real COVID play. Is it one that people should be trading in? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Mills has been all over this thing. Um, and we've seen a bit of a, of a pullback from about that $40 level to that $35 level. I actually got hit on some today. Uh, so clearly I'm a bull. I'm in the cap. I, listen, I like the exposure to iGaming and the online sports betting. I realize there's a lot of sports that aren't in play, but I think all that's doing is driving increasing uh, pent-up user demand. And so, listen, I, I like that. I, I add on the fact that like, there's not that much brick-and-mortar load for them, right? So capital light business, exposure to a growing sector, I'm still a bull. I'd be buying dips. All right, Buy the dip. Karen Feinerman, he, he's buying the dips. Are, are you a big fan of the sports betting type play in markets? I am. I do think that online gaming, it's, you know, this, it's been delayed. I don't know how long it'll be before we have regular sports seasons, but we will again. I have no doubt about that. And they'll find other things to bet on as well. So DraftKings obviously has been explosive and then pulled back a little bit recently, as has Penn Gaming. One that sort of interested me uh, was MGM, which... The Barry Diller IAC uh, position was really interesting to me, and I think that he could help them with their online gaming. And so, to me, that's sort of a cheaper way to play a similar theme. All right. That's the online gaming part of the discussion. Now on to our next companion question about the cannabis sector. Greetings from Harlem, New York City. In the next few weeks, the House of Representatives are set to make a monumental vote on decriminalization of cannabis on a federal level, opening the floodgates state to state, ultimately creating the nation's much needed strong revenue stream. Already you have the top cannabis companies in position. However, Grow Generation may be the leading hydroponic retailer in the U.S. Uh, but when it comes to that, supplements, nutrients, special lighting, and so forth, Grow Generation has major competition with Powerhouse, that is Scott's Miracle Grow. So I ask you, can Grow Generation grow past Scott's Miracle Grow in this vastly growing industry? All right, that's a great question out there. Carter Worth, we'll turn to you with this one here. I mean, the whole, the whole outlook for cannabis, what do we think? I mean, so as is the case with so many things that are novel and new, they come out of the gate strong. 
and then uh, many falter, and that was the case here with the general group of, of pot stocks. There's an ETF, of course, MJ, Alternative Harvest, to try to capture the group. My hunch is that it's basing and bottoming after what has been horrendous uh, past two years. So as a speculative long, I would do it. All right, Bonowin, what do we think? Are, are there particular names that you think in the industry stand out, or is this something where you just kind of play the industry with ETFs or play the ancillary, like with Scott's Miracle Grow? Um, I like the, the MJ ETF. Again, I own that as well. I just think in terms of like the regulatory environment, legalization, things of that nature, there's still a room for a lot of volatility there. There may be companies that come out and have some you know, fraudulent behavior. So trying to pick a winner in that group when in a budding industry, it's just not something I care to do. I think MJ is the way to play it. That's the way I'm playing it. All right. The ETF industry, again, a big hit for some of the people playing it. Karen Feinerman, let, let's go to you with this one here. Is this an industry that has a secular growth story for the next one, five, 10, 15 years? Yes, I do believe it does. Like a Beyond Meat and plant-based, this is, I guess, another plant-based one that I actually do think that we're, we are going to see growth. But uh, like the other two guys, I would do it through the ETF and not have to pick which particular one because they're, you know, you're playing different parts of the, the big story. Um, but I actually do not have any exposure to the space. All right, no exposure to the space. Carter, as you take a look at the way that these charts have developed over the course of the past couple, two to three years, we've seen extreme highs and extreme lows. What exactly do you need to see to indicate that there is a, an established trend that can develop within these types of stocks? So just in terms of the ownership, when you have this sort of um potentially mainstream thing. You had a lot of retail money. The market cap was so small that besides people who were given shares on the IPO, mostly retail. And so hence the huge moves out of the gate and then the equally huge and commensurate collapses. But what you need to see is just what you need to see in any bad situation, a downtrend that stops. You need to see basing. You need to see the, just the fact that it's not making new lows. And if you do look at MJ, the Alternative Harvest ETF, that is what is starting to happen. It's been horrendous, but it is not making incremental new lows. It, the action is developmental, uh, it, it, curative, and I would think it's one to, again, embrace on the long side. All right. Thanks to Karen Feineran, Bonowin Eisen, Carter Braxton Worth, our tribunal for Here Fast Money. We'll have more, obviously, throughout the course of the summer. That does it for us here. We'll be back tomorrow with another supersized edition of Fast Money. Shark Tank is coming up right after this. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.